All right, morning, everybody. Uh, my name is David Sorn. I am the lead pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, we are in the final week of our teaching series on what does the Bible uh, teach about gender and sexuality. Uh, and this morning, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at your top five most asked questions about how we as Christians should interact with our friends and family members uh, who identify as LGBTQ+. Um, I do want to say that this message today is not really a, a standalone a message. It's more like part four of one long message throughout this series. And I think without hearing the other points that we've already covered, I think it'll be a little bit hard for you to see my heart, to see the scriptures that we've deeply covered to build a foundation for how we answer these questions. So I can't encourage you enough to go back and listen. Uh, since you can't do that right now, uh, I would just say if you are listening to this online later, just to press pause right now, uh, go back to week one, uh, which was what does the Bible say about gender? Okay, as we look at these five hard questions today, uh, I want to start by saying Whenever we look at specific questions about unique issues, uh, especially ones where the Bible doesn't give an exact command, application is hard. We have to connect biblical principles to get an answer. And I think it's also important in each of our unique situations that we're seeking God's Holy Spirit direction for us uh, through the three main channels in which the Lord speaks, which would be this. God speaks through his word, right? He speaks through prayer, and then he speaks through his people, which is why I think it's so important that you're in house groups uh, this week in particular. In fact, uh, and if you're not in a house group, sign up for one of the new ones, like Pastor Josh said. But I think of the many questions that came in in this series, many of them were very specific or they were very situational. And that's where house groups is great because you can ask your very unique question and you can get godly wisdom on it. Also, we're going to be covering a bonus question, a sixth question in house groups this week as well. And let me just say, all of today's questions are really, really, really hard. So thank you for that. I appreciate that a lot. Uh, therefore, if you come up to me after the service today and you say, but David, what about this point from the other side? I'm just going to say, yeah, that's a super compelling point. On some of these questions, uh, maybe not all of them, but on some of them, there are even God-fearing, Bible-believing Christians who would disagree on the application. But many of you are asking these questions because you have to make a real-life decision on it. And so I've tried my best to study the scriptures intently and give you the best biblical principles and answers that I can. Okay, you ready? All right, let's get to the—I forgot, you couldn't respond. Uh, <laughs> Let's get, let's get to the first question. Number one, it says, what should I say to my friend who is trans or gay or bisexual or non-binary? Okay, there were a lot of questions uh, just like this. And really, I felt like underneath most of those questions uh, was a question like, how can I convince them? How can I show them that it's wrong, that it's immoral? And I think we're asking questions like this because we live in this sort of social media debate-centric world where we're always looking for ways to find the best new arguments to convince someone that they're wrong. But I just want to point out from the beginning here, this is not, this should not be our starting place. And so if you're talking to someone who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't want to start with moral issues. 
So for example, take a look at this illustration. Lots of times, I think what happens is we feel this pressure to begin talking to people first about their outward issues, as if that's going to lead them to Jesus. But if I start here on the outside, and I'm, I, I want to finally get to a deep conversation with my friends, and I, and I say, hey, you know, I know you're doing uh, some drugs, and I think if you curtail that, that would be good for you. I say, hey, I, you're swearing all the time. I think you should cut it back. Or Even if I start talking about their gender identity or their sexuality, what will happen is either A, they're going to be super offended and probably turned off, or B, if I somehow succeeded in getting them to change on one of those issues, realize I haven't actually led them to Christ. I've just led them to moralism. They've become a good person, right? They didn't become a Christian. They became a Pharisee. And so in spiritual conversations with your friend, with your family members, you don't want to work from the outside in. We start from the inside and work outward, right? So we need to start these conversations, not, not with debates about the gender binary or gotcha arguments about sexual identity. We start with conversations about Jesus and who he is and that he loves them and that he died for them. Right? This is what Jesus teaches us about human nature, right? In Mark chapter 7, he says that all of our evil actions that are evil thoughts, they actually come out of the heart. And unless a person gets a heart change by inviting Jesus in, none of those things on the outside can actually ever change. And so you don't want to be more concerned about your friend's sexuality than you are about their salvation. Change comes from the inside out. Okay, let's uh, let's go to question number two. Number two, uh, we got this one a lot. Was should as a Christian should I attend a gay wedding? Uh, this this is a tough one uh, with compelling answers on on both sides. There are certainly Christ followers who answer a yes to this question, and what they would say is they would say they believe that it is important for you to not damage that relationship, and so that there is still a bridge so you can later share the gospel with them. Uh, Now, as somebody who loves evangelism, I I empathize with that. But the problem is, a gay wedding is a celebration of two people coming together in a way that God calls immoral. And we talked about those scriptures in in week two, when we looked at Romans chapter one, and 1 Corinthians chapter six, and 1 Timothy chapter one. Now, if my neighbors were gay, and they invited me, say, to a Timberwolves game, I would go without hesitation, same as I would go with any of my non-safe friends. Like Jesus, I want to be in the lives of people who don't know God. But my presence as a Christian at their wedding celebration will not, excuse me, will be interpreted as supporting their choices, whether I internally feel that way or not. Okay, that's, that's what attendance at a wedding is about, right? You go there in support of the couple's future. Plus, many of these wedding ceremonies uh, have a religious or even a Christian tenor to them. And I I just don't want to be present at a ceremony that is using Jesus's name or God's holy word to bless something I know that he has told us not to bless. Now, those who answer yes to this question, the advice that they typically give is they'll say, what you need to do is you go, need to go talk to that person one-on-one beforehand and tell them, while you don't support their decision to get married, you will be present at the wedding because you want to support them as a person. Now, I think that's actually significantly better than just silently attending. Don't, don't do that. 
But I just, I don't believe that I have to be present at that ceremony to prove to that person that I love and care for them, even if that's what they feel. You know, I think too often what's underneath our moral choices is this desire that says, I need to make sure for the sake of the relationship that that person is happy with me. When really, firstly, we should be saying, I need to make sure for the sake of the relationship that God is happy with me. Remember, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells us that in following him, that will sometimes, unfortunately, create division even in our families, he says, because he is our first priority. And I just want to acknowledge, I would be consistent here, okay? For me, this actually isn't about gay or lesbian unions. It's firstly about biblical Christian marriage. Like, for example, if I had a guy friend or a relative who was a part of the church, uh, but let's say he left his wife and three kids to run off and have an affair. And then let's say six months later, uh, he decides that he's going to get married to this new woman back while his family is still in shambles. I just want you to know, I'm not going to that wedding either. Okay, even if he says to me, hey, if you're not there to support me on my big day, our friendship, it will never be the same. I'm still not going because that wedding is a celebration of something that Christ doesn't approve of. And for me, Christ comes first. Okay, two down, three to go, okay? Let's move, let's move to number three. Number three, you asked, what do I do if my child comes out? So your child sits you down and they say, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. I'm, I'm bisexual. I'm, I'm trans. You know, before you just kind of write this question off, remember with 20% of Gen Z now identifying as LGBTQ plus in America, uh, that means that this is likely to happen with one in five of today's American kids. And so what do, what do you do? Those first couple seconds really matter. So let me give you six things, okay? Number one, they need to hear from you right away. First thing, that you love them and you always will. Uh, someone's choices don't affect our love for them. This is 1 John 4, 8. It says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Number two, you want to thank them that they told you right? because they didn't have to. And so you want to be thankful that they're willing to have a dialogue with you about it. Tell them that I'm, I'm sure this was hard for you. Thank you for telling me. Uh, thirdly, uh, you want to ask questions before you start giving your commentary on it. Okay, you want to say, tell me, tell me what's been going on. Tell me what you've been thinking about. What, what's, what's been happening? If you want to eventually lead them to the truth, you can't get there unless you first understand how they're thinking. And then eventually, uh, number four, you'll have to, and this may not happen day one, you may ask for time to pray and think, but you'll have to eventually share with them as gently, as loving as you can, what God's word says, what his desire is for them. And you need to note that that might not, it probably won't, go well at first. But remember, your ultimate goal as a parent is to communicate the truth in the vehicle of love, okay? And so you don't want to speak so strongly that you alienate them, but you also can't make an idol out of your relationship either. And if I see parents make one mistake more than the other, it's definitely this one. 
And nowadays, they prioritize their relationships so much that it ends up almost sort of being an idol. They can't fully tell their kids what God's word says because they just don't want it to damage their relationship. But as Christians, we need to prioritize their eternal, that's forever, eternal salvation even over our earthly relationship. I think Luke 15 is a really good chapter to study here on how the father deals with the prodigal son. And remember our evangelism circle from earlier. If your child isn't saved and they don't have Jesus on the throne of their heart, do listen to this. Do not concentrate all of your efforts on getting them to change their gender identity back or change their sexuality back. Your emphasis, your prayer focus should be on them surrendering their life to Jesus because that is ultimately what will change their life. Change is from the inside out. Number five, ask for help. Resource yourself. Tell your small group leader. We talk about this kind of stuff here. Okay, tell your elder, let us help. This is what the body of Christ is for. Review this series, read the books we recommend. I know I recommend a lot of books, okay? But if this is your life, you have to read Out of a Far Country uh, by Christopher Yuan and Angela Yuan. It is the story of a mother who is praying for her son in this exact situation. I read a lot of books. It's one of the best books that I have read in years, because it gives such a good template and pattern for Christian parents to follow in this situation. And then number six, I would say no matter what happens, you have to trust, you have to rely on God. Remember, the only person who loves your child even more than you do is their heavenly father. Okay, let's move now to our fourth question. Fourth question was this, should I use someone's preferred pronouns? This was by far our most asked question, and honestly, it wasn't even close. Uh, And interestingly enough, uh, this is also the question uh, that I personally, as I've been studying for the series for a year, spent the most amount of time thinking about these last uh, 12 months. So let me start by saying, if we're going to answer this well, okay, and thoughtfully and articulately, we actually have to answer this on a spectrum, okay? Because how you're going to answer this question for an adult acquaintance or like one of your good friends or a neighbor, a student, a minor patient your own child, it's different. We have to apply it different. And I think we, we do this a disservice if we just give it one a bulk generic answer. So let's go through this. Let's start all the way over on the left with an adult acquaintance. Uh, many of you asked questions about work, actually. You said, okay, um, if I'm in a meeting and somebody in my meeting at work uh, who identifies as a different gender, they want me to use their preferred pronouns. As a Christian, should I do that? Some of you said, well, what about my own pronouns? My company is telling us that they really want us to put our pronouns in our email signature. As a Christian, should I, should I do that? Now, some Christians would say that if you're in a meeting and you say, uh, hello, everybody, uh, I'm David Sorn, uh, he slash him. If, if you say that, you're not lying, you're not bending reality, and then that allows you to kind of, again, keep that bridge open so that you can share the gospel with people. Uh, On the other hand, there are lots of Christians who feel that if you participate in sharing your pronouns in the Zoom meeting or wherever, that it actually just reinforces and maybe even gives credence to the lie that one can become a different gender. And again, I think every situation is unique. I think you need to rely on the Holy Spirit to guide you. But here would be my general principles uh, for work. Remember, if I don't know an adult well, and they're not a Christian, I'm not going out of my way to call out their morals. 
Okay, we don't work from the outside in. But at the same time, personally, I would avoid using a coworker's pronouns because I don't want to reinforce the confusion in our society. And if I need to address them in the meeting or I need to refer to them, I will try, and I know many Christians are doing this already, I would try to just use their name, which is a bit more arbitrary uh, than a gender. Okay, let's move down the spectrum a little bit. We're going to look now, okay, what if it's your close friend who wants to transition to a different gender? Uh, Say it's a neighbor that you're really close with. Uh, What do you do? Again, I think we can simplify this a little bit. If they don't know Christ, treat them like somebody else who doesn't know Christ. Or think of it this way. Okay, let's say you have a totally different neighbor. And let's say you know that this neighbor sometimes gets a drunk. Now, the Bible doesn't outright in and of itself condemn alcohol. We just read the story of Jesus turning water into wine the other day, right? But it does say that drunkenness is a sin. So if I know that my neighbor is getting drunk once in a while, how am I going to handle that? Okay, if this person's not a believer, it's not like I'm going to see them walking their dog in front of my house and chase them down and say, hey, 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 get back here. I heard that you got drunk last November. Shame, shame, shame. None of us, we don't treat people like that, right? And so we've got to think just logically on how we're applying this here. Okay, but what, oh, let me give you a different scenario. Let's say I'm sitting next to that same neighbor, and now let's say it's a neighborhood bonfire, right? And it's kind of later at night, I'm sitting next to just him. I'll say, he leans over to me and he says, hey man, you think I need to cut back on my drinking? Like the wife's been telling me that she just really doesn't like it when I go overboard a couple times a year. You don't think it's a problem, though, do you? Okay. In that situation, what I'm going to say is I'm going to say, you know, actually, I mean, I think you should stop. I think it's causing this tension in your, in your marriage. I know work has been so, so, so crazy stressful for you lately. Honestly, if you want to know what I really think, I, I think you need my friend Jesus in your life. Okay, that, that's what I'm going to say. So what am I doing? I'm not chasing him down with moral rules. But if he asked me for an endorsement of his sin, as a Christian, I can't give that. And so very similarly, I'm not going to exhaust my efforts to go and tell my transgender neighbors that their choices are immoral. I'm going to build a friendship. I'm going to build a relationship. And I'm going to share Jesus from the inside out. But... If along the way my neighbor insists that I use their preferred gender pronouns, I can't do that. Because if I do that, I'm giving my endorsement, and by association, I'm giving Christ's endorsement of their moral choices. Now, there's actually a a very relevant Bible passage that I think is so helpful in these very interesting times that we live. In fact, I want you to take a look at it. Uh, Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 10. There's a Bible uh, in front of you, so if you go ahead and grab one, uh, we're going to be on page 784 uh, if you're using the Bible here. And in this passage, uh, the Apostle Paul is actually answering a question that the Corinthian Christians asked him. And they said, okay, here's the deal. All, all the people that live around us in Corinth, almost all of them are not Christians. And when we get invited over to their house, what happens is they lay all the food out and all the meat. And most of the time, they say, hey, before we eat, I just want you all to know uh, today's meat has been sacrificed in honor of my pagan God. Let's eat in honor of him. And I mean, that's a good question. Like, what are you supposed to do in that situation, right? And so Paul answers that, and I think it's so helpful to our situation today. So chapter 10, and we're going to start, start at verse 27, so find that small 27. Okay, he says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, 
I think, what if you don't want to go? <laughs> he says, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, right, to their pagan god, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I'm referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. Okay, here's why. Because if you're at the meal and you're the Christian and you just kind of silently eat of this pagan sacrifice, the non-believer is going to assume what? They're going to assume that you, as the Christian, that you endorse what just happened, and therefore you give legitimacy to their pagan god. And Paul says, we can't do that. And the same thing is true when we endorse pronouns of our friends and neighbors without questions. I, I think of it this way. We, we can't participate in a lie with our friends in hopes that that lie will then help us share the truth. Okay, let's move another notch along the spectrum here. What would you do, what should you do, if you are a teacher, you're a therapist, you're a medical professional, and now you're working with kids or students? A ton of you ask this question. Uh, Now, we're at a different point of the spectrum here, okay? Because unlike, say, in corporate America, you are in a position of authority over a minor, a child. And so how we apply this is going to be different. And this is a tough one. Okay, especially because we are, we are neck deep in this now. So it's hard to think well on it. And so I think we need to think through some tough examples that we're actually not currently swimming in right now. And so I want, I want y'all to imagine that a, a 13 year old African American student comes into your classroom after school or, or into your office. She's a patient at work. And let's say she shockingly says to you, I know that you think that I am black, but I identify as white. And I don't want you to call me by my birth name anymore. I want a name that sounds more white. I've never felt black. I don't like black music. I like white music. I hate my hair. I want it straightened. I want it blonde. What would you think if that therapist or that teacher said, okay, I can affirm that you are white and we will update that in your file. Nobody knows you better than you and your racial identity can only be decided by you. And even if your parents want to continue to use your old name here, we will use your new name. What would you think? You would be irate. If you felt very uncomfortable in the last 60 seconds, I want you to know it's so extremely uncomfortable for me to even say those words out loud to you. Why? Because it's just plain wrong. You can't identify as a race that you're not. And listen, if that girl was in your office, if she was in your classroom after school, without, without hesitation, you would look right at her and you would say that her thinking is wrong and that she's beautiful just the way she was made. We wouldn't even think about it. We would just say it right then and there. But if that same 13-year-old girl comes in And she says to you, I think that I'm a boy. Many of you said to me, I can't tell her she's not. Because if I do, honestly, I'm probably going to lose my job. So let's talk about this, okay? Because this affects a lot of people in our church. And know that as your pastor that I love you. But this may be the hardest thing that I have ever said to you. 
But that is my job, to say hard things. You know, I think when this first started happening, if you go back five, six, seven years, as is often the case when we face something new, I think many of us were kind of caught off guard in our response. In a lot of ways, I think we froze. And in so many ways, five, six, seven years later, I think that we're still frozen. Sure, as Christians, we're we're not going out of our way to encourage this or anything, but we're not dissuading it in these environments either. We're using their name. We're using their preferred pronoun. And because you are an authority figure, they 100% interpret that as an endorsement from you. And I think as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to take this moment and stop as painful as this process may be. And we need to deeply ask, what would Jesus do in my situation? If Jesus were sitting across from that girl in the doctor's office, sitting across from that girl after school, and she said, Jesus, I think that I'm a boy. What would Jesus say? And would his first thought be, what is company policy here? And we need to ask this hard ethical question of what would Jesus do? Because making important moral decisions on the basis of, will this bring personal consequences for me, is not how we make important moral decisions ethical decisions. In fact, that sort of ethical decision-making has led to a lot of trouble if you study history. I think the persecuted church is a church that we need to learn from. They understand these sort of things all too well. They know that they get in trouble for almost everything Christian that they do. And so they know they can't decide morals. They can't decide right or wrong based on will there be personal consequences or not. My friends, the other thing I think that you need to understand is because this is exploding so rapidly and so quickly, this has moved, even in the last 24 to 36 months, this has moved way beyond just teenage boys wanting to dress in girls' clothes or girls wanting to take a boy's names. The number is rising exponentially every day. Young girls are now taking puberty blockers they're, they're having their breasts surgically removed. They are sterilizing themselves with drugs that will affect them for the rest of their life. And yet all of the range of studies say that anywhere from 61 to 88% of these kids will re- regret these changes after puberty. And in their devastation, many of these same young women will soak their pillow at night with tears, knowing that they will never get to be a mother. And they will say, but my therapist, but my teacher, but my doctor, none of these adults ever told me no. They didn't even question me. We are complicit in our silence. I, I love you all. I appreciate so deeply that so many of you in this church are on the front lines of this. And you deal with this every day. And I would say to you, don't run away from this. Unless the Lord calls you to. Don't run away from this because we need you there. 
And I understand the intensity of, yeah, but David, if I speak up in this, then what does that do to my family? I could lose my income. I, I just, what, what do I do? But I would say, listen to me. Hundreds of thousands of American children now are being absolutely devastated by this. And if as followers of Jesus Christ, we won't draw the line for the protection of children here, where will we draw the line? And so I urge you, especially our Christian principals that are listening to this, our our superintendents, our Christian school board members, our leading teachers, our influential therapists, our long-standing doctors, lead the way in banding the rest of the Christians together. It's time for you to lead. Listen, most of Europe even, Europe has already banned most of these procedures for minors. I am telling you right now, heaven and history both are not going to look back kindly on this period of American history. And so I urge you, go to your superintendent, go to your school board, go to your hospital board, those of you that are leaders, and say, listen, all of us as Christians, if you, if you want the 30 of us, if you want the 100 of us to still work here, then we need to talk about this. Staying frozen in silence cannot be our moral answer for the next five years. It is time to do something different. Okay, before we get to the last question, I do do want to hit on this last one uh, for some of you. Let me just say a quick word about your children or your own grandchildren who are thinking about transitioning or they are transitioning and they want you to use their new pronouns. Again, as we said earlier, you have to reflect the character of Christ. You need to respond in grace. You need to respond in love. But using their pronouns cannot be an option for you as a Christian parent or grandparent. Listen to me, grandma, dad, you may be the only person in their life that doesn't endorse this new false reality. And they need that tether, that lifeline still to the truth. And I know this is hard to hear. I know some of you are like, this guy's crazy. I cannot listen to him. He sounds so different than everybody else. But I am just begging you, let's step out of these cultural waters that we've all been swimming in that tell us to not affirm how someone sees themselves is to not love them. That just simply isn't true. It's not true. Okay, if you go back to the 1980s, uh, into the 1990s, when anorexia and bulimia exploded onto the scene, if your teenage daughter at 85 pounds came to you and said, Mom, Dad, I will not hear you call me skinny anymore. Mom, I'm huge. I'm huge. If you're going to talk about my weight, you can call me fat. Would you do that? Would you do that? Because that is how she sees herself. Not in a million years. You say, oh, sweetheart, I, I can't. I just can't. Because it's not, it's not true. And I love you too much to lie to you. And the principles are the same here. Okay, let's get to our final question. Number five. With everything going on here, How do we even have hope? With society changing so fast in America right now. This is where we need to press deeply, and not only into God's word, but I think even our own Christian history. So if you go back to the early centuries of Christianity, remember that Christians were a very small minority in an over-sexualized culture 
that had almost no limits on sexual behavior. And yet, you, you need to know this. The Christians of those days, they didn't change their beliefs on sex or holy living. Even though no one agreed with them, and they called them bigots and uptight for continuing to believe what they believe. And those same Christians changed the world. Not by enforcing their morality on it, but by bringing Jesus to it. Because when Jesus gets on the throne of someone's heart, everything changes, and he guides them in the way they need to go. You know, and I think as we look to the past, I think an era that would be very, very beneficial for us to study right now would be America in the late 1960s uh, into the early 70s. You think about those days, there's a lot they have in common, even with our own, of the last three or four years. There's a lot of tension, a lot of unrest, and a lot of movements were kind of born out of that tension and unrest of those years. In fact, one of the movements that was born was the hippie movement. Okay, and you had all of these uh, young people, teenagers and, and young adults that uh, wanted essentially to throw off authority, right? Throw off the old ways. They wanted to seek out peace and love and enlightenment. And that, along with that, came a lot of drugs and a lot of promiscuous sex. But the promise of the hippie movement at first was incredibly strong, right? Kids from all over the country flocked to places like California where they could follow any of their sensual desires and urges that they had. And yet, as the years went by, the hippies didn't actually find peace and love and enlightenment. What they found was emptiness and pain. And the sad truth of those years is many Christians, maybe even the majority of Christians, thought that the hippies were absurd or disgusting or despicable. And I fear that many Christians today think the same way about the LGBTQ plus community. But that is not the heart of Jesus Christ. And you know what? It wasn't the heart of some of his followers even back in the 60s and 70s. You know, with the help of Chuck Smith and Calvary Chapel, which is so well documented uh, by the Jesus Revolution movie. If you haven't seen that movie, you need to watch it like tonight, okay? Many Christians in California actually began to reach out to the hippie community. And these brave souls, these brave Christians, pushed themselves way out of their comfort zone and went to befriend these hippies and share the gospel with them. And as they shared the gospel and shared the gospel, the Lord moved in revival like ways. In fact, at the main Calvary Chapel Church, at the height of this revival, they were seeing mostly hippies over 200 people a week come to Christ. They were baptizing over 1,000 people a month in the Pacific Ocean. And the Calvary Chapel movement, which eventually became the broader Jesus people movement, sociologists say led to over 20 million people coming to Christ worldwide. And here's the fascinating fact. Today, you'd be hard-pressed to even find a hippie. But the church continues on. And so I urge you, as the years go by in this new movement, and more and more people that have been seeking new life in new genders and new sexualities, as they come to the end of themselves, we cannot, we must not be walled off from them. We must go to them. And so I ask you, who are the people in this room that will get down on their knees and say, Lord, send me. Where are the people in this room 
who will sacrifice, who will leave their comfort zone to bring Christ to a confused and empty community. Where are you? Are you here? They need you. Who will go? Because listen, hate will not save the day. Tolerance will not save the day, but the gospel of Jesus Christ will save the day. And so we bring it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we just pray, God, as we, as we try and live this out, that we would stay strong with your truth. But also, God, I pray over this church that we don't hide your truth. And we don't hide behind walls, but that we bring your truth because it contains the words of life. And that we bring your truth to a broken and hurting community, God. And may you bring revival once again. We ask for it in the mighty, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.